0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today with my fellow fellow panellists we'll be reflecting on one of the defining events of the 20th century, one that did so much to shape the world today. I refer of course to the fall of the Berlin Wall nearly 30 years ago on November 9th, 1989. What led to that remarkable event and the collapse of the Soviet Union just two years later? What is the legacy and the lingering threat of communism as an ideology and as a geopolitical force? But also, what do we now know about that fall that we did not know then? What did we find out as the archives of the Soviet bloc opened up, at least for a little while, and were exposed to sunlight? We learnt so much, and we'll talk about that today. That knowledge is also damning, not just for communism, but also for the intellectuals of the West who defended it for so long and... Of course, we're going to spend some time on that. All that and more, and in our Books and Culture segment, we'll stay on the theme. Uh, we have some wonderful uh, books for you today, including uh, John le um, Spy Who Came in from the Cold, uh, David O'Leary's book on the real role Pope John Paul played in the downfall of communism, the German film Barbara, which Berg will talk about, and uh, an absolute ripper called The Black Book of Communism, with all the history. I'm Scott Hargraves, Editor of the IPA Review. I'm joined today by my co-host from RMIT University, Dr Chris Berg. day, Scott. And uh, since this is such a massive historical event that's giving us our theme for the day, we have two wonderful historians, a resident historian, Dr Zach Gorman. Hello. Great to have you back on Looking Forward. And uh, non-resident, <laughs> uh, but no less valued historian, Dr Richard Orsel. Yeah.
1: Always a pleasure to be here, Scott. Oh,
0: it's great to have you. Uh, Don't forget, this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate or indeed go back through previous episodes of Looking Forward. Um, Now, Chris Berg. What happened nearly thirty years ago? What today? happened
2: nearly thirty years ago? So I, I I think there's a lot to discuss in this episode, um, but I I thought it would be a good idea to just give a outline of precisely what happened on November the 9th and um, why it was a shock and um, why uh, it, it's ramica- ooh, We can work out why its ramifications were so significant. So um, uh, obviously the context: this Berlin Wall is obviously East Germany, and we're talking about the fall of the Soviet Union, but they were deeply connected because in um, in the latter half of 19- 1989, um, there was a lot of pushback from East Germany about the um, Gorbachev's reforms, the economic reforms and political reforms, as well as really significant protests against the East German regime within East Mm. Germany itself. So um, particularly in, in Leipzig, there was a leadership vacuum. Um, uh, ...in the East German hierarchy. Um, and in, in addition, the East Germany was really quite bankrupt... ...or at least um, uh, had some serious budgetary crisis. And in that context, the East Germans decided that um, it could use the question of... ...should people be allowed to emigrate to West Germany as a potential budget measure um so they were trying to um tell west germany and they said this many times west germany if you give us money we will release more east germans to west germany which of course was in west germany's interest in the in the, all that context um what actually happened was really mundane and um a, and very strange so the pra- in practice what occurred is um on november the uh, 8th i think it was um There were four mid-level bureaucrats that decided to try to rewrite the rules of emigration in um, East Germany, following some fairly vague ideas. We, they, they were facing um, a serious crisis that there were a lot of people traveling to Czechoslovakia and then trying to get across the border from Czechoslovakia into the Free West. So they tried to rewrite the rules around that. And the document that they wrote was actually titled The Permanent Emigration of GDR, so German Democratic Citizens, to, to West Germany via the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. But in that document... They wrote that the borders would um, – uh, this this document was to go to effect right away, so the moment it was announced, and that um, emigration to the West could occur not just at a single checkpoint in mm. distant East Germany but in West Ber- – uh, Berlin mm. bracket West itself. It was still meant to be a temporary measure. It was still meant to require permission from the government. You still couldn't bring um, – Money, But it was uh, – and it was an easing of the rules, but it was still meant to maintain what they saw as border integrity. So four mid-level bureaucrats write this rule. Um, uh, The next day, um, it goes to the Politburo. So so, so this is government by press release. Government – (laughs) well, bear with me. Bear with me. (laughs) So four mid-level bureaucrats write this rule. It goes to the Politburo, the full meeting of the Politburo the next day, and somehow it gets waved through, basically because out of neglect and mm. disinterest, um, mainly probably because the title that um, uh, that still referred to Czechoslovak um, a- uh it, it remained as it was. So that they passed it. And then they said, oh, it, well, you know, at the end of the day, after this Politburo meeting, we'll just announce all the things that we decided at the Politburo meeting. So... Um, This fellow called Gunter uh, Schabowski um, had a Western-style, particularly Western-style press conference that day at 7 p.m., and he gave a boring rundown of um, what had happened in the Mm -hmm. Politburo, and at the very end of it, he picks up this document, this this thing written by these four mid-level bureaucrats, and starts to read it. He hadn't even read it himself before he read it, Mm -hmm. In public to the rest of the world, and it basically announced that right away, the borders were going to be open um, in mm. West in, in Berlin itself. Thousands of people flocked to the wall. Eventually, border guards started letting some people through over the course of the evening. In fact, they let the worst people through or the people Mm. that they thought were the most rebel rousers through first and secretly canceled their passports. Then that became too much. And then they let everyone through. And then realizing that in fact, the consequence of this was to split parents from their children, because it was permanent emigration. They started letting people come back in as well. Mm. And anyway, eventually over the course of the evening, the border was down. (laughs) That's how the Berlin Wall fell. But it had in its basis and it had its origins in this dispute within the Soviet bloc about how the um, how the rest of the Soviet bloc was supposed to respond mm. to Gorbachev's reforms. Mm.
1: And I, I think that's one of the interesting things, isn't it? Because obviously you tend to think of the Soviet Union as this overarching hardline sort of power bloc. But in this case, the Soviet Union was pushing more towards reform whereas the east german leadership when you think it was more hardline soviet than the soviet union had become by that time what really wasn't it chris
2: no that that's absolutely right mm. so there was and, and one of the reasons it's czechoslovakia is because mm. czechoslovakia was um, in fact people originally were trying we to go to hungary, hungary, hungary yeah. and but hungary was quite um, how shall we say, Gorbachevian. Mm. So they were, they were pro-reform. Mm. East Germany was not pro-reform. Czechoslovakia was not pro-reform. Mm. And so people would move on the relatively open border between East Germany and Czechoslovakia. And then in, when they arrived in Czechoslovakia, go immediately to the West German embassy mm. yep. and ask for asylum. <laughs> yeah. So people were piling up in there. And, so it's, but, it, but it's a crisis that came from um, – it, it manifested itself in East Germany but it's a crisis that came from the Soviet Union itself and and Zach Zach how do you how do you sort of see this this relationship between the proximate cause of this complicated interdepartmental bureaucratic machinations about border and 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 the more deep failure of of the Soviet system
3: yeah well that's the the sort of the um two things going on at the same time so why why does communism fall Ultimately, certainly as classical liberals, we like to look at the economic argument and how the command economy ultimately couldn't function so much um, by the late 70s, early 80s. So much of the Soviet Union even staying sort of fiscally alive at all was just based on oil exports. And obviously this is the time of the great oil crisis. You have something like... I, I had statistics that was... It was something like $120 a barrel for oil at the start of the oil crisis, down to $24 a barrel for oil. So the entire sort of economic system of the Soviet Union that wasn't working well internally itself to begin with, but was being propped up with this Western cash, that Western cash dried up, and then you had to they had to start asking real deep internal questions, which is where you start getting... Um, you start getting these internal reforms with the USSR. But it's one thing for these economic crises to deepen and for that to sort of undermine people's faith in the Soviet government. It's another thing for the people themselves with all the memories of things like the Hungarian revolution in 1956, the memories, very fresh memories of Tiananmen Square, which had only happened a couple of months before, to really be brave enough and sort of say that the emperor has no clothes and come to the Berlin War, or um, whether it be in Poland with the um, attempts to crack down on the Solidarity Movement that never really succeeded, all these brave actions of individuals actually standing up and turning, turning those economic um, discontent into something real intangible and real...
2: Mm. That, that's, that's one of the really interesting things. And I think, I, I think later we should talk about the comparison with China today, mm. but... Um, what was really interesting – so I, I, the, the book I have to recommend on this actually is, is called The Collapse. It's by Mary Elise Sarot, and it's a really close reading of precisely what happened across um, uh, across East Germany and um, Hungary and Czechoslovakia in the months leading up to the fall of the wall. But what what was really striking about reading this book is is these Leipzig protests. Mm. Mm. So over the course of 1989, there are protests – uh, serious, um, uh, sometimes tens of thousands mm. of people out on the street in Leipzig mm. at the very same time that the East German government is spending a lot of time saying what um, the, the Tiananmen Square Massacre was yep. was a very good idea. So, then, yeah. you know, the Chinese we, option. Uh,
1: yeah. And we know that the Stasi did have plans to what they were going to do to those demonstrators, which fortunately were never... In the end, implemented because events moved on too quickly.
2: Yeah, mm. and and but but to, to Zach's mm. point, they make individual mm. people make decisions mm. not to shoot. Mm. Individual mm. people make decisions to march the next day mm. when it's the most risky. Individual people mm. make a decision just to keep moving mm. forward, even when they're blocked. And 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 fundamentally, it's not the um it, it, it it's it's not those four four blokes who wrote a very bad. Mm. Or very um, uh, very confusing um, uh, uh, migration agreement it's it's those individual d- decisions on the ground
0: yeah and and certainly at the time let so we look back on it now and, and we see what happened but certainly at the time uh, it was through the prism of uh, what had happened to the you know the crushing of the you know the Prague uprising in 68 uh, mm. Hungary, uh, before that, Tiananmen Square, mm. and 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 that was always the question: Are the are they going to send the tanks in? Uh, are they going to go and uh, round up everybody and, and put them into the camps? Because this was at a time, of course, when you know this was all uh, in living memory. Uh, there was a, I mean, when you talk about the Stasi, mm. so the East German uh, secret police mm. uh, had something like ninety thousand active agents. Yep. So you know, it came out later that something like there were files on basically half of the East German population had spied on the other half Yes, at, at one time mm. or another. Um, and the and, uh, and funders, uh, Stasiland is one of the books that we mm. might talk about. So there was nothing inevitable about what in particular happened, but it was certainly a crisis point. And, and one of the other things, of course, that was making them hold back is not because they'd suddenly um, uh, discovered uh, humanitarianism. <laughs> it was also the feeling that perhaps this time everything might come crashing down and maybe it's time to start... I, I better start looking after myself. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. want to be the guy that gives the order to pull the trigger who then finds himself in front of a firing squad in six months' time. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's mm-hmm.
2: one of the... Again, one of the proximate causes there is the leadership uncertainty. Yeah. Um, so the um, leader of the GDR, Honecker, mm-hmm. had actually... quit, mm-hmm. uh, Had either quit or mm-hmm. was just about yep. to quit when a lot of these decisions... Yeah were being made and when when you're the um, uh, police officer or the Stasi official yeah. trying to decide whether you're going to open fire on tens of thousands of protesters and you're not sure whether the leadership in Berlin mm. is going to be the leadership tomorrow, <laughs> yeah, right. um, you don't want to make that call.
0: Mm. No, it's, it's, um, I've been thinking about it some, because uh, jumping ahead in, in time a little bit, a lot of these people did display amazing footwork in how quickly they became ex-communist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and sort of, oh, I had nothing to do with that. Um, <laughs> exactly. one I was reminded, I remember nothing about this. <laughs> one I was reminded of uh, reading the Black Book of Communism was um, one of the members of uh, Poland's Politburo um, was elected president of Poland uh, in 1996. Mm. Um, but he was by that stage officially an ex-communist. You know, there's mm. amazing speed, oh, or in Russia, of course, where they all turned into oligarchs. Yep. They, they resigned from their Communist Party affiliations mm. and, and suddenly they were very, very interested in the privatisation of state assets <laughs> <laughs> and, and got their hands on them. So.
2: So, so to my mind, it all comes back to... Um, I, I think it's a fascinating story and I, I recommend people read this book collapse which are you know, we, for, for those watching we've got a massive pile of books on the table um a no, real no, for uh, those not watching for, sorry for those not watching <laughs> yes. um uh, and as an explanation to be clear these <laughs> are books um we've got a massive amount of books on the table and we're probably going to speak about a number of books in this um uh, uh but but to, to my mind it it goes back to so the failures of Communism for whatever reason that we think communism failed in the Soviet Union because it all pulls back to that There wouldn't have been this great Mm. political uncertainty. So Richard, why don't I give you the great question? Mm. Richard ready? Thank you. I'm ready. Why did communism fail?
1: Well, (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a whole intrinsic I mean part of you know Zach's sort of on the money there. I mean, in a sense, intrinsically, eventually it is economically going to fail. And the reason why, um, you know, we're I know we're going to talk about China later, but, you know, in a sense, China had to become, in many ways, capitalist in order to save its communist features. And the Soviet Union obviously had a lot of economic difficulties. I think also... Um, The 1980s were a case where the West, in a sense, regained some of its confidence. In the 1970s, um, the West was in a terrible funk and really didn't stand up to communism in any meaningful way. They were the days of detente and moral equivalence and uh, and just everything seemed to be going wrong in the West, both internally and externally. And then you suddenly get this period from the, the late 70s onwards, you get a Polish Pope, you get Margaret Thatcher in Britain, you get Ronald Reagan in America. Um, that all comes together. It just happens to coincide with the end of the era of that Soviet le- – the very old Soviet leadership when Brezhnev um, depart, dies. Um, and then you have this churn of Soviet leaders over about a three-year period where they have four four leaders in, in three years. And you end up with Gorbachev as the leader, who was somebody who recognised that the Soviet system had to change. And he's – starts to make changes and the flow on effect is some of these things. And he was making changes. Let's not, you know, Gorbachev was no, you know, liberal in the sense that we think about it. He wasn't trying to, you know, make the Soviet Union a liberal democracy. But he did recognize that the system as it was in the Soviet Union was not working. And there it, it, it needed to be reform, some form of economic reform, some form of openness needs to step on some of the corruption that was taking place to try and reform the system. And all those things come together to create. The environment, which leads to um, eventually the the collapse of the Soviet Union, and as always with these things, you, you need a bit of luck. So you need that you had all these these circumstances that created the overall situation, the West being stronger and more ideologically clear on what it stood for, um, and the, just the the case that it made the Soviet Union, I think, realise they were never going to beat the West, and once they'd sort of come to to that position, it. I think it led to a bit of a lack of uh, confidence in the, in the 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 Soviet system as well. Zach,
2: exactly. how, how important was that geopolitical
3: context? Well, I think it's interesting you talk about, you mentioned the fact that in the 70s, the West really wasn't putting up to the fight to the Soviets, that mm. um, the sort of Brezhnev era became, in hindsight, the sort of start of the, the decline, that it was such a sort of stuffy conservative mm. time within the Soviet Union that no reforms were really happening. But the West, and when I say the West, I sort of mean the United States as a sort of moral um, tr- standard bearer of what the West certainly in a Cold War context was, they were so um, tied down in the um, ends of the Vietnam War and in the water great crisis and in all this sort of internal um, sort of struggle. The thing to um, bring up when you're bringing up that then is that you have, by 1970... Nine, you have the inverse, where the Soviet Union gets itself entangled mm. in the war in Afghanistan that becomes this never-ending quagmire that really um, makes the Soviets, certainly internally, a bit more aware of their own fallibility. I think one of the reasons that the tanks don't roll into East Germany and they don't roll into Poland in the 80s is because there's this increasing awareness, at least among Gorbachev and some of the um, more intelligent people, certainly the sort of military-industrial complex would have wanted the tanks to have rolled in, but there was this awareness amongst the more intelligent that they couldn't keep this up anymore, that the strengths of the Soviet Union, particularly having been sort of outbid in an arms race that Reagan had initiated in the early 80s, that they just couldn't keep up.
2: That's a sort of limits-to-empire story, in the
3: sense.
0: One of the the things that we... Uh, need to remind
2: ourselves though of that
0: was, n- that was more obvious in- we now know inside the Soviet Union than it was in the West. Mm. So famously all, even while Reagan was essentially running a grand strategy of uh, renewing the nuclear arsenals trying to station new missiles in, in Western Europe um, and really uh, in- increasing defence spending so taking the, um, the, the great game up to the Soviets. The CIA, the CIA uh, was still advising uh, Reagan and the rest of the government that the Soviet economy was extremely sound. You know, It was growing at 4% GDP per year. So the, the only people in the world that believed that um, communism was working or Marxism was working as an economic enterprise were leftist communists in the West – and the CIA, <laughs> who, who, who were believing the numbers that were being officially published by Eastern Europe. So so when, when, yeah, so we now know all this, but it wasn't obvious, necessarily obvious at the time.
2: Yeah, so there's an interesting um, – one of the other books I read in preparation for this, uh, again, a magnificent book called The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, and uh, I, I learnt a lot from that book, but one of those is um, there was always the assumption in the West – And amongst Western policymakers that the CIA was making estimates of the GDP and economic activity within the Soviet Union. There was always an assumption that there was another set of books that were more accurate Mm. in the Soviet Union. Turns out there wasn't. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out that the CIA's estimates are actually probably pretty good. And they're in in many ways um, superior to the sort of inputs that um, the Soviet leaders themselves we're getting as well, um, which speaks to um, the the question of so so so. There's the geopolitical context, right? Um, uh, and and there's the role of individual human liberty and the mm. desire for freedom um, that is that is really fundamental to this. But there's also just the basic problems of running a communist mm. society for yeah. seven, 70 years. Um, uh, and and uh, as I see them, there's sort of two not mutually exclusive, but there's two interpretations of why the Soviet Union didn't, didn't function um, as well as its supporters would suggest. The first, the first interpretation is the sort of Hayek idea, mm. that they didn't have enough knowledge about the economy itself. Mm. There was no price system. They were allocating um, resources by, by fiat from mm. the Politburo, and there's some great stories about um, how individual allocations to individual factories had to be decided in the Stalin era by Stalin himself because mm. no one wanted to make the decision. Um, so, and, you know, a function economy like that just doesn't function. The second interpretation is is more that it's not so much that there was a Hayekian information problem. It's just there was just a lot of rent-seeking and there was mm. a lot of politics that led people to be corrupt and to steal mm. resources. So when you say X amount of rubber should go to factory number 12, people will just take, you know, a, mm. uh, 30% of that rubber and sell it on the black market. Um uh, Richard, how do you sort of think about um, the internal failings of of the Soviet Union in that in that economic sense?
1: Hmm. Well, I think obviously it was. It, you know, any command economy is not going to be as efficient as a as a market economy. I mean, I think that's a very um, basic um, fact. But I mean, I think. Some of this has only become become evident in hindsight, because certainly as somebody who lived at the time, it certainly wasn't a narrative in the West that you know I think most people accepted that the West was more prosperous, but there was there wasn't really a sense that the at the time that the Soviet economy was in any sort of crisis. You know, their living standards were not as high as living standards in the West, but there wasn't that sort of general view. And there were stories that came out that there were shortages in the shops and people had to queue to to get. Get things, but no, what's but, really but, yeah. but Western
2: economists? Sorry to interrupt, mm. but Western economists many actually projected that the Soviet economy was growing faster. Well,
1: and that's <laughs> the thing because so many. I mean, anybody who likes um, planning as a concept tended to like the, the Soviet thing because they had five year plans and so forth. There's and no that's waste. So clearly, that's for those people who believe that planning is better than a market economy. That's obviously um, something that um, they would you know, think was. Were, was going well, and I think there was also, particularly, and I think we're going to talk a bit more about some of the people on the left in the West in in due course. But it was also a thing that they'd managed to avoid some of the worst bits of you know the market economy that people find. People who don't particularly like capitalism find distasteful, such as advertising oh, yeah. and and having, lots, yeah, of good, we, having
0: yeah. lots of goods on the shelves for you to look at is just part of the consumerism. It's, exactly, you, you know, don't really,
1: you know, those just things that people might want but not actually need. You don't um, need that many types of toothpaste. That's exactly, exactly <laughs> it's right. It's all yeah.
0: Madison Avenue. Yeah. yeah.
1: So <laughs> um, there was always that sort of that sort of view, and um, and it's interesting too because as, just sort of touching on it that point a bit more. I think sometimes. Um, people you know the West would would sort of say the Soviet Union you know people on the left and the west would say the Soviet Union isn't perfect but you know they were wor- you know they're working towards it and the West isn't perfect either so they've each got failings oh, and, 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 and and
0: plus um, this will be a story which uh, uh, is being repeated today. Mm. I remember uh, late 70s, 80s one of the stories was uh, Russia had become a net grain importer mm. now Australia of course got very interested in that so mm. so Malcolm Fraser. Uh, at the time seen as, you know, Cold War warrior. Um, mm. Nevertheless, uh, with his agrarian background and his National Party mm. friends, decided saw, an opportunity. That, <laughs> saw an opportunity and this was a great export market. So suddenly mm. we might have to say nice things about the Soviets again because mm. we might sell them grain. But, of course, what was being missed in there was under the Tsars, Russia had been a grain exporter. Yes. So mm. in combination of the collectivisation of the farms and the mm. persecution in the Ukraine, mm. and they turned themselves into a net grain mm. importer. Mm.
1: But I think, I mean, I think, and also one of the other things, of course, you know, is looking at the, the history of Russia going back further. You know, this was a country that had no experience of liberal democracy at all. Uh, so whereas some parts of the, the Eastern Bloc in Eastern Europe had had some you know, democratic experience along the way, often fairly limited in a lot of those countries. But in Russia, um, perhaps other than for a couple of months in 1917, there hadn't really Mm. been any, you know, democratic background for people to fall back on. So people were used to living in some sort of an authoritarian environment, the whole tradition of the place. And obviously, by the 1980s, people had been living under the Soviet system for 70 years. So there weren't really many people still around who had any memory of any other type of system to the one that they were living in at that time.
3: Um, just before we move on from the economic point, I just wanted to bring up that a lot of the time when we talk about the failure of communism economically, we get caught up on the knowledge problem. And while the knowledge problem um, is really central, the other aspect is the incentive problem. One of the real problems that um, the Soviet Union were facing as time wore on was that productivity was going down in these factories because there just Mm. wasn't enough of an incentive to work. And when you have Andropov um, replacing Brezhnev in the early 80s, one of his main sort of attempts at reform was a real crackdown on people just not showing up to work. He Mm. made it sort of a capital crime to not show up to work because Mm. it'd become... Such an endemic problem in the so- Soviet Union.
1: Well, I think those people weren't being paid, so it had that old joke, wasn't it? You know, you, we, we pretend to work and you pretend to pay us, you know? So was-
2: no, that's right. And and the incentive problem becomes a huge issue when they try to reform. And this is what I felt very compelling about the Chris Miller book, The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy, is that um, uh, perhaps unlike China, which we might get to, unlike China, there was a massive amount of political benefit built into these large government-run, large collective farms, large industrial mm. um, uh, industrial areas. And everyone was getting benefits out of it, or at least everyone in the Politburo. Mm. And everyone in the bureaucracy is getting benefits out of the fact that um, they were centrally planning the economy. And and so trying to chip away at that was just really, really challenging. And so, so economic reform goes through... St- Or reform in the Soviet Union under Gorbachev goes through two or one and a half stages, really. So there's perestroika, which describes the reforms to the um, to the economy, um, the the privatization of collective farms, the allowing of private um, things like private restaurants and so forth, um, and more exposure to the market. But then there's this Glasnost, and Glasnost is the opening mm. up of the political system. And, and And Miller argues really compellingly that this was necessary in Russia because Perestroika, perestroika could not be enacted in the absence of political reform. You had mm. to reform the Politburo because otherwise you couldn't open the collective farms. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, because inf- information didn't flow around uh, a Soviet system. Um, I was just one of the books I have here is. Um, uh, the, about the Metrovskan archives, a uh, bloke who smuggled out, they'd uh, been collecting for 20 years, uh, the KGB archives, and managed to then get them out of, the, um, of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And one of the things there was the KGB was awesome at collecting information. It had <laughs> terrific agents with great field craft um, and, you know, paid plants all over the world. What they were terrible at and that, at was analysis because you couldn't write what you thought about what the evidence was and send it up the line because if it didn't accord with what today's political line was, that could get you fired or worse.
2: Mm. Yeah, or, or you could lose your benefits. And there's this mm. there's this magnificent quote which Friedrich Hayek could have written by Gorbachev himself. Who, um, so this is in early 1987. Gorbachev is mocking bureaucrats for being, quote, too afraid to give up your direct connections with industry. But this economy is... 200 fi- uh, 250 million points of mutual exchange. It's not possible to regulate this from the center. No <laughs> computer could manage. A, <laughs> that is a direct quote from Gorbachev, which, which makes me think that a lot of economists today don't understand that. <laughs>
0: yeah, <it's laughs> a, a tre- Australian Treasury Department, yeah. perhaps.
2: So, so um, Zach, I'll ask you. So why, why didn't uh, Russia manage the China strategy, which is you can reform the economy, but you don't have to change the political system.
3: Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the logistics of the USSR, not uh, both itself as the USSR being not just Russia, but yeah. um, other socialist republics internally, and then the sort of Warsaw Pact states. So you had so much, um, so much more to try to control. You had these territories that did have, albeit fleeting, experiences. With democracy, you had territories that had their own sort of political history. Um,
0: Poland, for instance. Yes, mm.
3: certainly, po- certainly Poland. And I don't want to get too much into Poland because I'm going to um, use all my material for my <laughs> <laughs> um, culture, culture pick at the end. But yeah, definitely that. That um, Poland is very much um, considered to be the sort of political spark that the economic. Um, in internal economics might have been going just as bad as in Russia as it was in the rest of um, the Soviet bloc, but certainly as far as the inspiration to stand up to the Soviets and sort of have that have that emperor has no clothes moment, mm. that happened in Poland. And you see that today in China, that the areas that they really struggle with are those mm. parts that are culturally distinct from China, are mm. Hong Kong, are Tibet, um, and these sorts of Zinjiang. places. Yeah, yeah.
1: And ben, I think that's exactly right. And they've, China's got, far fewer of those places than what the Soviet Union had. The Soviet Union was really an empire of a whole range of different places. And um, and obviously they just didn't take the decision, you know, you know. China made a very conscious decision to go down the capitalist path, which even under you know Gorbachev's, despite Chris's lovely quote there, they they weren't really doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he might have understood it's nice that in thoughts, theoretically, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 it was a nice
0: thought. But he wasn't. That really wasn't what he was doing. No, Were but there's. It, uh, I mean, no, there's. No, no, yeah, but no. Yeah. Richard's right. Uh, Perestroika was not about markets. It was about restructuring and and more efficiency. It was a a belief that they could make the uh, Mm. Soviet economy more efficient. And corruption and... So so
2: I I have one um, uh, observation on that, which is that I think it was stronger than than it's usually recognised. And the reason I think that is because the Soviet Union in 1989 was actively experimenting with special economic zones. So it had gone to Shenzhen. They'd Mm. sent a delegation to Shenzhen to figure out why this Mm. functioned well in China... Mm. Um, they were told why it functioned yeah. well in so China, and they. And set one up at home mm. on um, uh, on the East Coast. Mm. It wasn't a success. It wasn't a, that wasn't because the um, taxes weren't low enough or anything mm. like that. It's just it was badly placed. It was there. Yeah. It, it, there was some serious um, political issues. But at that time, they knew that the Chinese model of economic reform in a market direction, not mm. a free market. Yeah. It's yeah. not libertarian. No. no, no. But um, do you think it, if they, it was if the, genuine?
1: If the politics had held up for another five or ten years, would they have been able to go down no, that so path? Did the politics intervene too soon I, to stop them I, Again, doing this that?
2: Is, see, this is the Miller argument. Mm. So that the, the, the argument that he makes is that you couldn't have done it because there were so many interests right. um, based on the existing system and the real one was the military. Mm. So unlike in the um, – uh, so the, the way Gorbachev bought everyone off was basically through capital expenditure. Yep. I will reform your industry, yep. but I will give you a massive amount of money, mm. and a um,
1: uh, bit like the button plan
2: in Australia, yeah, exactly. that sort of thing. Yeah. For, yeah. for you, just to build mm. stuff, mm. and you'll have mm. more staff, mm. and you know, so you, you get an empire, but I take away some mm. of your um so, some of the restrictions, some of the communism mm. Is, mm. stuff. Um, uh, now in China, that's not what happened, and that's not what happened, particularly for the military because there was just much greater control by Deng Xiaoping. And what right. happened, and I'm just going to um, uh, cite some facts because facts are always great. So straight after Tiananmen mm-hmm. Square, the Chinese the Chinese government managed to slash the budget of the army itself by 10%. Um, uh, they were unable to do that in China in, mm. in the USSR at all and they would never have been able to do
1: that. Is that because Russia has more vested, you know, the Soviet Union had more vested interests? If you like, it had a sort of, for want of a better term, a bureaucratic middle class that had this vested interest
0: in well, China They had a name for it, didn't the, uh, yeah. they? The nomenclature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's, so
1: they had more vested interests in the existing system than China than, than China had. So and, in,
2: and you could sort of tell that story about the, the various history of them mm. because, of course, the, the 1970s is a, in the USSR is a time where those vested interests mm. are building up. Yeah. That's the political sclerosis and the economic sclerosis, yeah. whereas China's a younger um, yeah. socialist country at that stage. Um, much it's poorer been at that mu- stage. Much poorer. Um, it's, of course, been through much more mm. recent trauma, um, trauma mm. with um, the Cultural Revolution and mm. so forth. So it actually hasn't and, built up as yeah. much. And, so and, nobody's and, got a vested interest well, in the status quo.
0: Well, possibly too. Um, uh, So when we talk about communism, we talk about Marxism and Leninism. And Marxism is the economic system, uh, which is the one that didn't work. But the varieties of Leninism are about the supremacy of the party. So um, that's what I meant about, you know, in many ways, I was trying to hang on to the Leninism. But in in China, and I'm thinking of... um, uh, different, different books that I've read, which I didn't bring today because I was mainly thinking of the Berlin Wall. But I didn't
2: bring all the books I'm going to cite, yeah, that's and that's because I read them all on Kindle. But yeah, this. Okay, that's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so
0: um, they had a much more decentralised system. So, for instance, uh, the Russians, uh, they uh, uh, took over the Tsar estate, if you like. Uh, the KGB was extremely centralised. So in the Great Purge, the KGB, something like 720,000 people were executed. It was all done centrally, whereas when Mao wanted to purge, mm. it was, he just set quotas. And it could be handled. Mm. it was a, a story of devolution, you might say, of localism in action. Mm. Um, uh, you know just find the appropriate number of kulaks and mm. uh, or uh, peasant landlords and and uh, and kill them. And so there, you wouldn't have had the sort of the centralized mm. organs um, uh, fighting back against change. so, so it is an mm. interesting hypothesis, and but I think what yeah the Chinese did differently was They absolutely hung on to the Leninism. There is only one party. It's about um, uh, our uh, party rule, but Marxism can go. We'll completely let that go. You can be as
1: prosperous as you like, provided you don't upset the party. That's right, and we'll
0: use markets as a mechanism. You can Mm. become rich, Mm. and we don't have a problem with that either. Mm. It doesn't have to be great state-owned enterprises. It can Mm. be individuals Mm. getting rich, Um, and it's, of course, the getting off topic now, but the tension now is they're trying to bring the Marxism back mm. back in. Xi Jinping thought is very much about the economic base and the, the SOEs are making the comeback.
2: So we've talked a lot about the, the economics and the politics. What about the culture? So Janet um, uh, uh, Olbertson, who is, of course, the IPA chair, um, uh, had a really um, uh, good piece in The Australian the other day where she goes through the role of underground subcultures um, uh, at the very end of of the Soviet Union, citing a book called um, Burning Down the House by journalist, author and DJ, apparently, according to Janet's piece, um, Tim Mohan, talking about the social history of punk music behind the wall. Um, I've also seen some really compelling arguments from, in fact, Reason Magazine has argued that the um, airing of the TV show Dallas was really devastating (laughs) to um, Eastern Bloc uh, political systems because it looked uh, – so they, they allowed it to be aired because it looked decadent and mm. it was like all the bad morals. But everybody it was like, those houses are huge. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Nice car. So, but, but Zach, well, Zach, I'll ask you to comment sort of on the cultural aspect of this. and
3: Yeah, well, the, the Iron Curtain was only secure for men and troops and go- goods to a certain extent. But you had um, – You had radio signals, you had television signals being broadcast over. Um, So there was always this ability to sort of cut through in a manner that the um, Russian government didn't necessarily want. Um, There were great efforts put into particularly producing radio programs that would be broadcast um, into Eastern Europe. Um, But particularly that idea of, um, just for a younger generation, just the stultification of... Um, of communism and just having having your lot in life sort of set out for you from the beginning, I think um, we'll get to it when I talk about um, the Pope's role in this, but um, a lot of what the Pope did in inspiring um, Poland's resistance to communism was just ask basic questions about, Sort of, what if? What is the meaning of life? Is it really to just go and work in the same factory for the state every single day? Mm-hmm. And young people had this um, same sort of epiphany, not necessarily on the sort of theological level, but on on the just the frustration of stultification, which is happens enough in a sort of Western society that people always, young people always think that um, the sort of the the status quo of a wife and two kids and a nine to five job and all those sorts of things are dreadfully, dreadfully dull. Mm. But compared to what the USSR was offering, it's, it's, it's paradise.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's one of the, I reckon it's one of the great ironies of the period is that, you know you have this '60s revolution in Western society where you know young people are rebelling against the West conservative Western status quo and start wearing jeans all the time and long hair and hippies and all this sort of thing. Most of the, a lot of those people driving that were all um, lefty sympathetic to the Soviet Union, but at the same time you have Soviet Union, the rest of the Eastern Bloc, these incredibly conservative societies which are then threatened a bit by sort of youth revolution, be it, you know, at that stage or later on from punk or what all these things seem to ageing... Like, if you're a a 75-year-old Soviet apparatchik, these people seem very dangerous to you, don't they? Mm. If you're a very... What a very grey... Where everybody goes off and does their bit for the Soviet state in a state-owned factory, um, people being often, you know doing hippie type things is not really what you had in mind for your uh, so- soviet nirvana
2: so, so richard what what then h- how would you describe the legacy of this collapse on the left because obviously we might get mm. to the right in a moment but obviously there's been a um it, it, was mm. there a rethinking about some of the basics of progressive left-wing communist views um, or?
0: To,
1: I think to a limited extent there there was I mean I think they sort of came around to accept that the Soviet Union probably hadn't been as successful as quite a lot of them had been making out for some time <laughs> now different people on the left have had that by sort 1993
2: of, it becomes obvious yeah, that they're yeah. not going to overtake yeah, the West <laughs> yeah
1: um, <laughs> Different people on the left have that sort of epiphany at different stages. Some, you know, in Hungary in 56 or Czechoslovakia in 68 or at different times sort of the penny drops. But I think for a few more people the penny sort of dropped that the Soviet Union was not a successful society. Um, But the left were very um, quick to sort of... um, I mean, they certainly didn't want to give any credit to the people we were mentioning before, but, you know... Pope John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. In fact, one of the books I have here has this lovely picture of Ronald Reagan on the front, but the whole book you is can, devoted to You can show the camera. Show, the, show book, the camera the you book. Know, lovely picture of Ronald Reagan astride a horse there. Looks a, it's a wonderful picture, but the whole book is devoted to saying that he and other people like him had nothing to do with the <laughs> uh, collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. Um that hence the title Cold War triumphalism and the misuse of history after the fall of um, communism. And so I think they um, you know quickly moved on to create a, a new – I mean, the left also has changed. I mean, when you think about the left up until the 1980s, a lot of it was whether – explicitly marxist or not quite marxist was material in the sense about the material condition of working class people which is what communism was meant to address to ensure that working class people had um, a good material standard of living we know that didn't work on that ground but that's what it was the
2: idea is they get richer yeah the, Yeah.
1: the, the working class people get richer that is not a big preoccupation of the modern left really, is it? <laughs> no, um, economic growth is not their yeah, not really yeah. their thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, so the, the left moves on, on into this whole different uh, range of sort of issues which, some of which were part of the left agenda at that period, you know, things like, um, you know, racism um, and I think we should also, you know, I think it's interesting that apartheid collapses around this same time too, which I think is an interesting point as part of the sense that this was exciting times around here. That you know, authoritarian regimes of all sorts were collapsing as well. So, if you were somewhere in the broadly liberal centre, you you know, whether you thought Soviet communism was worse than apartheid South Africa or vice versa, we could all share in this sort of project
0: thing. But I think, I think, I think you're being altogether too kind to the left. Well, I'm talking <laughs> about the much softer left when I'm talking well, about But I mean, the general left. I no, think. They, I, I don't think there was anywhere near enough of a reckoning. Know, for, oh, no, I don't think they. For, for, for the they position sort of, that they'd taken throughout the they take, the Cold War.
1: Yeah, and I don't. I think they just moved on to their other preoccupations. Well, but this is.
0: But that's. But that's the point. But there's no. They just moved on and yeah. were allowed to move on. Mm. Um, so the link between you know pre and post is the ideal of the left is still egalitarianism.
1: Well, uh, I yes, yeah, so, so I think the. Pre- no, I think yeah. their preoccupations. I think have changed? I mean. They've always been good at moving on, like you know, Khrushchev denounces Stalin, and most of them sort of agree with that. And as a yeah, communism's not the
0: problem; it's Stalinism.
1: Stalin's the problem. Or you know, you know, and I don't think I don't hear too many people on the left going around saying what a wonderful leader Brezhnev was, for instance. (laughs) You know, that's not that's not a big part of the modern left agenda. No, but but, that was part
0: of the part of the issue. So, so let's say Khrushchev, um, he denounced Stalinism, but. Uh, that was the time when they shifted the focus, say, to fomenting revolution in the third yep, world, yep. In, in South America, and supporting Cuba, and and um, uh, Cuba went into Angola, and you know, they, mm. they, they,
2: but, they, yeah. They but I reckon, to, the, I reckon the big change that happened in on, on the left in this. That um, is very indicative at the time. Mm. It's environmentalism. Mm. So environmentalism doesn't fit that egalitarian model. It's Mm. it's a totally different thing. And the Soviet Union was terrible at it, just abominable at environmental Mm. protection. In fact, such
1: as Chernobyl, which was well, Chernobyl's
2: one of them. But Mm. but there's a. I I, I was reading, in fact, last night, um, a book on the. <laughs> the Bakal Amur Mainline Railway (BAM Railway) um, in the uh, under Brezhnev, so mm. in the nineteen seventies, and and this this book, it's a fairly recent book, is dealing with the very internal debates that they had about this. We need to build a giant railway in the mm. middle of nowhere. That's the most important thing. Mm. It's like we a often star have that in Australia. So no, we in in the national, national party. Sorry, that. to be clear, it's a dam. No, we need to build a giant railway in the middle of nowhere, and. Uh, and, and it will look like one of the old Stalin level scale things it'll be a national monument and all that and there are some low level bureaucrats and some activists some um, young socialists who are um, very angry about the environmental impact mm. of course that makes no difference whatsoever and they build the railway anyway but, um, but what happens in the left certainly in the 1980s and 1990s is that it turns from that traditional mm. materialist sort of, mm. not to the identity model that we have today but mm. to environmentalism Bob mm. Brown Mm. becomes the iconic left um, leader, not um, uh, n- not your local union rep. Mm. Yeah, but I, no, I, it, nah, you're, you're nah. still
0: missing it. That because there was no reckoning. Um, so for a time, attention moved on to other issues, environmentalism, but because it, there's no acceptance of the, the shame that the left should bear for um, 80 years of apolo- apologies mm. for, for the Soviet system and everything it had done... Um, it, it's, it's, that's why it's coming back. That's, that's why it's been uh, let out of the box again. I mean, when they were, the environmental movement was starting, they weren't criticising things that were going on behind the Iron Curtain. It right. was just not an issue for them. And, in fact, they refused to accept the evidence of the environmental catastrophes um, that were subsequently uncovered behind the Iron Curtain for a long time. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a great quote. It was the New York Times... After the collapse of the Soviet Union, someone wrote actually wrote an op-ed, uh, which, which said, um, "Thanks for trying." <laughs> mm. It Don't was like, laugh. "Oh well, you know, <laughs> 20 million killed, you know, mass starvation, mm. gulags, yeah." But mm. look, it was all in a good cause, yeah. and that, and that, that I think is mm. the uh, the. Mm. the what well I we think also there, there was a capture.
1: lot of you know, what how how to respond to objectionable regimes I think was a big issue of the 70s and 80s and I think the different view the left had as to how best to end apartheid in South Africa and how you know best to moderate communism in the Soviet Union was quite indicative. With South Africa the the policy was obviously complete isolation would be the way to bring them to heel whereas generally with the Soviet Union was the more engagement, the better and nicer things will become. So um, there was obviously, a, you know, you might be able to create an argument to say why you should have different strategies for the for the two, for being tough with one and sort of moderate with the other. But it's um, certainly, at least on the surface, that's a striking inconsistency. Zach, mm. so
2: that's the legacy on the left. What's the legacy on the free market liberal right? Or, um, I mean, it, it's obviously the case that so much of our politics is based in, a, um, a, a, a sort of coordinated around the debate about the Soviet Union.
3: Well, it was a great unifier for one yeah. thing for the right that when you when you had communism and even internally um, in sort of domestic politics where you had out and out socialists who were in, inspired by um, communism, then it was really easy for the right to sort of know um, what they stood for because the right. Sort of inevitably, because it's such a hodgepodge of conservatives and classical liberals and libertarians and all these individualists, and the one thing individualists don't like to do is be told what to do or agree. They need they need this this cause to unite them. I do think there is an extent to which um, the lack of an opposition has made certainly the sort of pro-capitalist side um, weak. You had the the irony is that is that the 80s were the great um, decade of economic reform, as far as pro-capitalist economic reform is concerned, and that played however bigger part you want to assign it in bringing about the fall of the Soviet Union because it accelerated this sense of competition and it really highlighted the extent to which they were falling behind. We haven't had that level of economic reform anywhere in the Western world since. There's something has... Not being right without that enemy, we just haven't been able to um, inspire people in the same way.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean, does, does that sort of mm. what, what strikes me is what's going on here is that we're now in an environment where it's not clear that the anti communist bond between mm. the sort of center right and even center left in mm. some ways, um, or, or, or and the conservative or mm. the liberals, and mm. mm. so so that bond seems to have fallen down. Now we also have a resurgent democratic socialist movement so there seems Mm. to be on the left some revitalization of that
1: and it's it's very different too because you know all through that period you know the post-war period up till the collapse of communism, particularly, say, in the Labor Party in Australia, you had this significant to between the pro-communists in the Labor Party, the fellow travellers, and the right in the Labor Party. So the, mm. the, a huge – if you talk to older people in the right of the Labor Party in Australia, most of the, their, their defining thing is their anti-communism. That's their defining thing, and they were on the absolute front so, line so of names fighting. L- com- names like Robert Ray, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, Paul Keating, yeah, Graham I mean, Richardson, yeah. even you know they, 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 they define. They were in the Labor Party to fight the communists, to fight the geet sorts and the you know people like that who history has shown were genuine fellow travellers. Okay. <laughs> um, they so. And then hence you said, like, on university campus, there's these incredibly broad coalitions of people fighting the left on campus, from this people in the Labor Party right through all the different people you might broadly associate with the right, right through the, you know, Bob Santa Maria's people on campus, to libertarians. And when you think about it, libertarian on most things, libertarians and followers of Bob Santa Maria don't have a lot in common. But on that, they were very much on the same page in, in fighting um, communism. And I think that that's, you know, that's the one thing that united a whole lot of um, people. And that's really broken down now. So now when you're talking about, you know, democratic socialism in a mainstream left party, you don't have that identifier of it that part of that agenda might be being virulently anti-communist because they don't have to define that so much, do they? You know, That's mm. not part of the debate. So where they're Policy falls doesn't necessarily have to be defined by whether they're anti-communist or
2: not. But uh, th- there is an example of a very large mm. quote socialist com- country in the mm. world right now, which is of course China. Mm. Why isn't why isn't um, uh, why why doesn't a uh, why doesn't the existence of China and what's going on in China immediately rebut this sort of soft communism, soft socialism, um, mm. quote democratic socialism?
1: because i don't i i don't think that's the, i don't think modern day china is the ideal of the democratic socialists in many ways because you know no but it, was
2: was the soviet union i mean if you were if you were an american communist and let's say you uh, um uh, just mm. you lived in new york would mm. you genuinely and you, you've got your own newspaper and mm. you sort of and and you go down to the i don't know you you do spoken word poetry mm. or something like that mm. but obviously you're not looking at the soviet union going like that's perfect mm. this is ideal because yeah, you're probably a trotskyist you know That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And that's a Leninist
3: Mm. obvious difference.
2: But why why doesn't why doesn't what is happening in China right now give us a a very clear reason to um, disdain socialism?
3: I I think it's ultimately multipolarity. It's that for all the rise of China and the concerns we're getting now. China has never been the enemy in the way that Russia was the enemy. The entire Mm. global discourse was set up around Mm. the USSR versus America. And even today you have um, the legacy of the fact that so many people in the democratic party, for example, are obsessed with the fact that Russia is still the enemy. There's not, (laughs) there's not China is not the bogeyman. China is not about to start a domino theory effect. Um, Certainly that sort of stuff is starting to brood to the surface now um, and things might change in the next sort of 10 or 20 years. But certainly compared to, I don't think the world has ever seen um, a period in which it was defined globally by two powers to such an extent. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. and, and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if
2: you were a country in that world, you were on one of the sides. Mm -hmm.
0: And that's that's one of the other things that's changed. Um, I mean, your question is about legacy is that uh, Europe moved inwards. So the, the the great legacy of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which is what we started our program with, was the reunification of Germany. Mm. And as soon as that was on the table, uh, that was all the Europeans wanted to think about. So the, the French, you know, being invaded three times in the course of 80 years by Germany... It will focuses the mind. It does <laughs> a little bit. So then the entire game was, well, what are we going to do to... Uh, ...counter this resurgence in Germany. Well, we must have an even more powerful EU to counterbalance. And uh, we had an article by uh, German-born uh, economist Oliver Hartwich... ...in the IPA Review recently where uh, he was talking about the birth of the euro... ...and tying that right back mm. to some of the deals that Helmut Kohl did at the time. So the economic miracle uh, that had been seen in West Germany... Um, ...founded on a strong currency under the Bundesbank... Helmut Kohl threw that under a bus. Absolutely inexplicable that he would allow a European central bank to be formed um, and destroy that sound finance which had undergirded Germany for so long. Inexplicable other than this was the trade-off mm. for allowing them to reunify with East Germany. Uh, East Germany then gave us uh, Angela Merkel and uh, all the uh, you know, everything that she's done to Germany in the period since... Uh, it's no no wonder that Britain's trying to get out, but the, the point being that the idea of the West as uh, an alternative to that communist model, um, not only did America go off on frolics of its own, but uh, Europe turned inward. Become less interested in in ideology, in fighting for freedom as as something it could tell the world about. Its its uh, its legacy has been very negative in that sense.
2: Angela Merkel, of course, uh, East European, sorry, East German, and I believe crossed the um, crossed the wall uh, mm. uh, in that evening.
0: Yes, mm. but absolutely um, uh, had no uh, didn't line up on either side of any ideological divide. Um, uh, really but, the um, ideal politician though, Yeah, fam- famous story that she, <laughs> she walked into the Social Democratic Party meeting Saw someone she didn't like no, Walked out and, and went to the uh, 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 Christian Democrats yeah, no, yeah. So, yeah. so I,
2: I was quickly Googling this mm. On the night the war fell, she opted to go for a sauna and a beer with a friend Yep Which, yeah. to be fair, well, wouldn't you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the... Yeah, I mean I, think that, I mean, I think one of the things we always tend to think of at this period is, you know, the, the whole end of history thing that the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of um, communism was going to bring in. And I think there is an argument to say that, you know, certainly in, t- in terms of the 20th century, we had more cause for optimism in the 1990s than the decade of the 20th century, without doubt. You know, the world seemed to be improving by the 1990s, both within the, all the reforms that Zachary was talking about before in Western countries, which seemed to be heading in the right direction—the fall of communism, the fall of some other authoritarian regimes, such as apartheid South Africa. Things seemed pretty optimistic, and yet we really, as we've headed into the 21st century, I don't think mo- many people would be as optimistic about um, some of the, the geopolitical world as we perhaps yeah, were but, then.
2: But uh, I mean, I think we were wrong too, and the seed you could see what was going on, and the mm. post-communist transition is a really good. Um, mm. instance of that. In Russia itself, yes. they were really, really struggling to build those liberal institutions yep. Yep. because liberal institutions take aren't... Time. The, well, they mm. either take time or they just don't build themselves. Mm. You, you, um, they're really hard to import. They're really hard to um, construct. They do get constructed mm. and got really good examples of um, free and successful mm. economies where those liberal institutions mm. have been built, like Japan and, mm. and, and Germany. Um, but But in Russia... And in many of the former Russian mm. client states or Soviet client states, we we saw either degradation or built up corruption that, that we're now living with the consequences of. So it's no surprise that um, uh, the, the, the um, terrorists who caused September 11 mm. came out of Afghanistan. Mm. It's yep. no surprise that now we're talking about Um, the Russian role in the world. Mm. um, or the Democrats are talking Mm. about the Russian role in the World Act. Uh,
1: is, is, is Is this a result of did the West or in particular individuals, make particular mistakes in the, the post-Soviet world? Or I mean, it's, it, obvi- it's obviously
2: it... the case that people made mistakes, but the question is, were there better choices yes. to make that they could have realistically made? Yeah. Um, I, you, know, you know, are they making the best choices they can at the mm. time, given the knowledge mm. they have? And, and I think we made a lot of mistakes about transition because I think we thought a couple of things. We thought that we knew how to build new mm. societies... Um, because we've done so in mm. Japan. Um, we just knew how to take an economy that mm. was not functioning and, and make it good because we knew institutions are good, so we've mm. just built the institutions. and We knew private companies are good, so mm. we just privatised them. Um, uh, but but I, I think we it's not totally clear how you would do it now. Yeah. Mm. Still. Uh,
0: what, what I'd like to say, and perhaps this is the right note to finish uh, this section of the program on, is address some of the questions that you've raised but do it in the spirit that Richard talked about. As you watch... Uh, the tv over the next few days there'll be a lot of specials there'll be a lot of footage of the fall of the berlin wall a um, uh, lot you'll be hearing uh, beethoven's ode to joy which was uh, almost like the theme song uh, <laughs> for the fall and that re- which was a pan-germanic song was actually mm. about the reunification of germany so it was very appropriate mm. um, as, as you listen to that spirit you know joy it was to mm. be alive uh, if we A little of that spirit would go a long way if we could actually get back to that whilst addressing some of Berg's questions.
2: No, that's absolutely right.
0: But we have reached that section of the show where we're going to reflect on uh, uh, various books and movies. Strangely enough, that have something to do with the fall
2: fall of the Berlin Wall. Theme, so there's no let-up.
0: No let-up on this theme. (laughs) Communism theme today. Communism theme. Who wants to start us off?
2: I'm happy to start, so I was looking around for um, so I mainlined a number of books on this program which I've named, but I was looking around for a um, Bill and wall themed movie. Um, and I watched Bridge of Spies again, which is um, pretty good. Goodbye, Lenin, of course, um, uh, is an excellent movie um, as a sort of comic um, movie in the lives of others, which is a v- much sad... Brilliant. Yep. Brilliant, brilliant, but much sadder and much more demoralized. The movie that I actually um, ended up watching was um, a German film called Barbara. Barbara, it was filmed in um, 2012. It's, um, it's a sort of slow burn movie. It's a very quiet, slow realism, I think the genre is called. But what it's about... ...is a, um, a, a woman who's a doctor in East Germany, in Berlin. She applies for a visa to leave for West Germany. Um, and And as a result, she gets incarcerated... ...because they don't like this idea... ...and then she gets sent to a rural... Um, East German village to be a doctor in a small hospital there. Um, she has a West German lover who tries to um, uh, get her out. She's um, constantly harassed. She's um, uh, co- uh, Her apartment is searched every time she goes out for a couple of hours and um, all sorts of bodily searches as well. Um, so she lives a really awful life. Um, uh, but what it really brought home to me is that sort of mundanity of um uh living in a dictatorship like that particularly when it's not like you're a dissident it's not like you're not Alexander Solzhenitsyn you're not trying to launch a political party for freedom you're just wanting to leave mm. you just want to have um uh you you just want to have a quiet life in a better country in fact your own country that's just been um uh split but it it's a um it, it's a very good Movie just to underline the sense of oppression. We mm. say the word oppression a lot in a lot of contexts, but just that he- sense of heaviness about state power in um, e- experienced in the late in the nineteen eighties in Germany. Happy ending? Mm. Uh, I don't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Sorry, mate. No, right. We're, spoiler free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right.
0: It's the, yes. it's the small lives. So think of the millions and millions of people who lived with it. Uh, actually, yeah. I'm, I might have a, have a go uh, as I reach for my book. Um, I'm going to talk about The Black Book of Communism, which is very, very large, um, <laughs> a multi-author volume, uh, which I can't claim to have read all of. Um, but it's a, it's a landmark work that was uh, put together... Um, mainly a French-led project after uh, the fall of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union when the archives opened up and uh, Stéphane Courtois and his collaborators um, started going through the archives and um, Courtois in particular really drove what he wanted was an accounting of, of how many people had died in the various countries and so... Uh, There's disparate sources for things like, say, um, uh, Stalin's Great Purge or Mao's Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. He wanted to... uh once and for all, chronicle them all and put some academic rigour. And this is an academic project. This is not just a, like a conservative hitchhog. Courtois himself had been uh, a Maoist in the sixties, of course. Mm. <laughs> <'Cause> like both <laughs> French intellectuals, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, and, and, and most of his, his collaborators were, and um, and so this this book came came out, and um, Harvard University Press, Harvard University Press, very um, uh, reputable. And he accounted for nearly 100 million deaths attributable to communism uh, in the 20th century. So 65 million in, the, in China, 20 million in the Soviet Union. You know, 7 million people died just in the gulags. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the prison system of prison camps um, uh, where if you, if you weren't actually executed, you still stand at a pretty good chance of dying, mm. uh, either by, from neglect or deliberately. Uh, Cambodia, of course, 2 million. North Korea, another 2 million. Um, and another million in the Eastern Bloc, uh, Vietnam, another, another million. And um, so this was the, a landmark. It was fated by, um, say, Aunt, uh, Ann Applebaum, um, uh, who's a great Sovietologist, uh, historian Tony Jutt... In An the author,
2: sorry, on, and author, sorry, and author of The Magnificent Gulag. Indeed, uh, well. in,
0: indeed, uh, which uh, I think was... Uh, is it re- on the, t- it, on the is table? table, table yeah. Is yeah. a- and, yeah. and also uh, <laughs> Famine, which was reviewed recently in um, uh, the IPA review by David Craig. Um, so sh- she certainly in- endorsed it, historian uh, Tony Jutt, who is... Not exactly right. When crazy said um, the myth of the well-intentioned founders, the good Tsar Lenin, portrayed by his evil heirs, has been laid to rest for good. No one will any longer be able to claim ignorance or uncertainty about the criminal nature of communism. So that's uh, and yet here we are. And yet here we are. <laughs> and and uh, sadly, part of the story of this, I think, is that this book is is out of print. It's uh, and in fact, one of the IPA staff members. Uh, who's currently enrolled at a university went on a mission. I said, "Well, mm. sure, you know, it's uh, it's hard to find online, but I uh, just go and grab a copy out of the university library." <laughs> Guess what? There wasn't
1: uh, one. Wasn't and it in the anti-communist section? No, <laughs> strangely enough. no. no I
0: couldn't fit them in for all the books on imperialism and colonialism uh, and, and uh, intersectionality. And so in the entire Victorian interlibrary loan system, there's one lonely copy sitting at Federation University. Well, not anymore. you hold hold it. <laughs> <laughs> but I have it here for the moment. We will have to give it back. So for all the uh, eager students out there, you'll have I to get it. Just
2: wait for Scott. Yeah. Friends, yeah. Yeah. So, so
0: credit, credit to Federation University, but but I think that, that's part of the um, uh, why I was so passionate about the the lack of a reckoning here. Mm. That there's just a desire to forget um, uh, and not confront the horrors of that past, and um, uh, and and to deny that this was real existing mm. communism it was just a Stalinist aberration. Mm. Um, so I think uh, I think we need like a comic book version of the Black Book of Communism very soon. Maybe that'll be an IPA project. Mm.
3: Um, So I did uh, Liberating a Continent, which is a documentary that won a bunch of awards. Um, I think it swept the Mexico Film Festival because good Catholic country liked it. um, uh, And it's on John Paul II's role in the fall of communism. Um, As a historian, I generally am a bit averse to documentaries because they have to say everything in brief and you can never get that sort of level of detail but there's a time and a place for them. And particularly with modern history like this, um, as someone who wasn't actually alive when the Berlin Wall fell, has no living memory of these sorts of events, the value of being able to use this real footage and real interviews with people who are still alive um, is really good. And while I may have no living memories of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I've got plenty of the Pope because my nana her entire house was plastered in images <laughs> of Pope John Paul II. Um, my nana's now 96. She's still going strong. Um, I don't think she's updated the photos of the Pope, which is probably for the best, considering the current Pope. It's been <laughs> downhill ever <laughs> since. Um, <laughs> but this documentary, is <laughs> this documentary is really good. Um, it obviously goes a lot into um, the role of John Paul II and how... His first visit to Poland um, in 1979 really inspired um, first the solidarity movement in Poland, but then sort of the dominoes coming out of Poland as far as people in Eastern Europe um, starting to question the Soviet regime. And it was just a sort of force out of nowhere that there hadn't been a non Italian pope for some 450 years there was no reason that John Paul II ever should have been elected Pope. Mm-hmm. Not only was his predecessor, um, did his predecessor die after a little more than something like a month in the office, but he wasn't the preferred candidate. It was these factions that um, couldn't get their preferred candidate up that ultimately ended up with John Paul II. And his tour of um, Poland in 1979, just his very presence was enough to start eating away at the communist regime, because they'd obviously been trying to um, crack down on religion. They never um, banned Catholicism per se, but they did everything they could to actively discourage it. And suddenly you had this pope show up and millions of people come out in these crowds and everyone looks around and says, wait, there are actually a lot of us. Um, we have got this power. We are actually able to do something. And the other thing that the documentary is good on is sort of the peculiar history of Poland. And the way in which um, Poland in the 1980s has this um, sort of nationalist um, force where people want independence and they want to get rid of the communist regime. But that nationalism was so directed through the Catholic Church because this is a country that had only existed for about 12 years since 1795. It had been constantly partitioned by its more powerful neighbors. It had a hatred for the USSR because of the USSR's involvement at the beginning of um, World War II and also the fact that um, the Soviets stood outside the gates when the Warsaw Uprising was happening and basically let 200,000 Poles be slaughtered. So they had this um, hatred for um, the Soviets that really was visceral. Um, but it all came back to this sort of nationalist pride that existed without a nation-state. It existed in the culture and it existed in the people. Hmm.
2: Yeah, and the worst thing for a totalitarian dictatorship is for you to have other loyalties or other identities or other sympathies and to, and for you to have them as a group.
0: Hmm. And particularly religion, the opiate of the masses. <laughs> yes.
1: right. well, my... One is John McCurry, the spy who came in from the cold, which um, is very appropriate because the the book both starts and ends uh, with incidents at the Berlin Wall. Um, It starts at the Berlin Wall with a character being shot, trying to escape from East Berlin into West Berlin. Um, And I won't, a bit like Chris, I won't say whether it has a happy ending at the um, Berlin Wall. the book is very famous, as it says on the back of the burb it's acclaimed throughout the world as the greatest spy story ever. Um, it was written in 1963, and Le Carre is, is a pseudonym for a man whose real name is David um, Cornwall. Um, and he was an, an interesting um, character who um, had a uh, sort of a bit of a mixed up upbringing, a bit of a difficult upbringing, even though he was very well uh, upper-class English person he spent a bit of time teaching, after a little bit of war service, he spent a bit of time teaching at Eton and then he was uh, got into the uh, British um, spying agencies and even to this day his time in, in, as a spy is subject to um, quite some debate. He was re- um, criticised in recent years for, by the head of MI6 for um, the, his portrayal of spies across a number of uh, not books because as the head of MI6 was trying to claim spies are actually very nice people doing their best for the country, which is not how Jean le Carré often describes not, not how it comes across in Not the always books. how it comes across <laughs> in the books. Um, so I think that's really interesting. I mean, published in 1963, I think it's actually where it was a revolutionary sort of um, book is because um, there is a s- strong degree of um, if you like, moral equivalence between the West and the East in this book. Um, um, which was Fairly new for the time to see um, the hero be something also of an anti-hero in the the book. So you have a person who's been a British um, spy in working in uh, West Berlin uh, with a network of um, other spies, then comes back um, to Britain and then is sent on another um, mission where um, the objective is to take out one of the leading East German um, spies, obviously a particularly dangerous mission. But there's always this degree of ambiguity for the reader as to know whose side are people on, because you have people on both sides of the divide who could be double agents. And it's not always clear as a reader to know who's actually on the right side and who's not. And Sometimes turns out that people who come across more sympathetically are actually people who are double agents, whereas people who uh, come across as a bit more on the obnoxious side are actually, in one sense, more principled in what they're they're trying to do. That's so the model I've always assumed. yeah yeah exactly. So um, so it's a it's a I recommend is a very good book. Um, as I say, it's a, it, it does um, it's probably. Um,
0: Bit too much moral equivalence well, that's for, it, that's for the it. liking of many of us. Yes,
1: exactly, and I think that's the point. And I think it's it's really significant because that sort of became a bit of the model then going forward for the rest through the sixties and the seventies and and beyond, as um, you would argue. And Lacare is still going strong. In fact, he's just mm-hmm. had his twenty fifth book has just been published and is getting reviews at the moment. Um, and if you read any of the interviews with Lacare at the moment, he's a uh, very angry man. About some of the more recent developments in the Western democracy, as in the UK where he lives, and um, also in the, the US. So,
0: let me guess—he's a Remainer. How did you guess that? Uh, what do you know? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was it the
1: teaching at Eton, or you know, <laughs> well, a writer, a, right, right, which was which, yeah. which which was it? Gave it away. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so um, but as I say, very important book at it's at, at the time because of the impact it had um, and. Uh, certainly, a very powerful book, um, with a, um, as I say, highly appropriate given this discussion of the Berlin Wall. Because it, uh, while most of the book is set away from the Berlin Wall, it starts and, and ends with um, and stirring. It looks l- it's,
0: admirably about the right size too. It so. is
1: about the right size. It's not too bad, and yeah. you'll be pleased to know I had, I've had this book on the shelf for many, many years. I think this uh, is an edition that came out in 1979, so it's a historic.
0: Sort of thing you can knock off on a lazy Sunday afternoon. That's right. Mm. Thank you for that, Richard. You've been listening to Looking Forward, which is, of course, a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you want to access our research, listen to previous episodes of this podcast or other podcasts uh, such as YIPA, uh, the Young IPA podcast, or to join or donate, please do go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists today, Dr Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Dr Zachary Gorman. Cheers, mate. Dr Richard Orsop. Uh, and, and me, Scott Hargraves. <laughs> no, Doctor. I just Mr Hargraves. <laughs> Also to our producer for today, uh, Josh Stranger, Uh, we'll be back with more looking forward next week.